Let me read that text. That, that song came from just one more time, Neil. Luke 1, 46 through 55. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm as he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. <clears throat> so this song of Mary's is, is not only the first Christmas song, it's also the first Christian song. In the sense that it's the first song sung that's been, that was prompted by the incarnate Christ. God in human flesh. A freshly conceived baby. As early as possible in the Christmas story, as soon as Mary knew that she had conceived, there was singing. Rejoicing aloud. This is why we Christians are people of, of praise. And praise is what I, I define as making our joy explicit. Praise is when, is when we make the happiness of our hearts known. And Mary talks about her, her spirit, her soul. She's talking about the depths of her personhood. Her whole self is filled and overflowing with profound joy and praise in this God that she sings about. And she's, she sings a radically God-centered song. She celebrates the character and the actions of our remarkably good God. That he is a lover and a lifter of the lowly, revealing his strength in how he cares for the weak. He's incomprehensibly mightier than any who consider themselves mighty, blowing away those who oppose him in their pride and showing how puny their so-called might really is before him. He is the center of Mary's song. And when she sings about herself, which she does a little bit, it's just to point out that her whole being is about exalting him, glorifying him, magnifying him. And that's a good word that can help us know what we mean by glorifying God. I remember years ago uh, hearing John Piper talk about magnifying God as a telescope rather than a microscope. Because a microscope magnifies, but it magnifies by trying to make things look bigger than they really are. That would be like us trying to make God look better or bigger than he is. Like, oh, or maybe like that part doesn't seem so great, so let's puff up this other part that looks better to us and minimize this part. That's heresy. But contrast that with a telescope. 
A telescope also magnifies things, doesn't it? But it takes something enormous and makes it look more like it really is. And that's how we magnify and glorify God because our perspective is so fallen and small that to this world, they think of God as a tiny little speck, like how we see the stars. But that's not the truth about stars, is it? They're not tiny little specks. They are bigger than we can comprehend. And so is God. Greater, more valuable, more beautiful than we can fully comprehend. And he made you for awe and wonder before his splendor. And you won't ever sing the song your soul was made to sing until God becomes big to you. He has to be the bright center of gravity around which you orbit. This is our purpose. This is our high calling to magnify our magnificent God. To live lives that show him for who he truly is. And Mary shows us exactly how to do that. Those first two lines of her song are parallelism, meaning they're paired together to communicate the same thing. Soul is paired with spirit. Lord paired with God, my Savior, and magnifies, goes with what? Rejoices. Rejoicing in God as Savior is how we magnify the Lord. And this is really good news because the way then that you fulfill your ultimate purpose is to be as happy as possible. A pastor who's had a great influence on me through his writing and preaching is John Piper. I mean, I just mentioned him a minute ago. And I... He, he, made, he has made it his personal mission to help as many people as possible understand one sentence, essentially. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And my favorite way that he's communicated this is when he took this famous statement of faith, the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? And that's an old way of saying, what is the primary purpose of humanity? And the answer comes back, the chief, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And John Piper took that conjunction and and he changed it to buy. Man's chief end, our primary purpose, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And that's so illuminating for our lives. It also helps us to see how God's pursuit of his own glory is good news to us. Because when God seeks his glory, by that definition, he simultaneously seeks the greatest and longest and most satisfying joy of his people. Piper is essentially saying the same thing Mary is saying. That if you want to glorify God and fulfill your greatest purpose, the way that you do that most fully is by being utterly satisfied in him. Rejoicing in him. This is how Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And this is why it's good news that God calls us to join him in pursuing his glory. Because it's ultimately where we find our greatest joy and fulfillment. We don't, in other words, we don't choose between being happy and being holy. The truly holiest people are the most deeply happy people. Because our happiness is rooted deep in the stable character of God. 
This is why we Christians are singing people. Because music and melody and poetry, they carry our praise like few other things can. They're an outlet for our joy in God, an overflow of the fountain of our faith, bubbling up from our hearts. Nobody sings like Christians. And for instance, the world's second largest religion, Islam, has such a defective view of God that most adherents think that music and song aren't allowed at all. But when we read the account of the true God, the maker of music, becoming a man, everyone around that event makes melody in their hearts to God as they praise him with their lips. This is why we're focusing on these songs of Christmas. It's why when Luke records the Christmas story, he can't go a page without recording a new song. People are bursting out left and right in joyful singing. And through this, God is glorified. Ultimately, our singing is because the nature of our God. We have a singing God. Zephaniah 3 says in this beautiful passage, Lord, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And we will join him in his joyful song. And the uniqueness of Christian singing isn't just its, its, its prevalence and prominence, but it's also its substance. Our singing is an empty sentiment. There's a lot of that, though, around this time of year, Christmas, uh, in our day. But our best singing is deep and strong and, and is rooted in, in God and truth. In God himself, like Mary's song. She's focused on the remarkable character of our God. Because she's so focused on the character of God, she is utterly confident in him because she knows God's character. She listens when God portrays himself. Like in Isaiah 57, 15 says this, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And now listen, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is where God, the unspeakably exalted one, is drawn to the, to the lowly. That's where his heart goes. As Pastor Andrew and I reflected on Mary's song together during our songwriting, he was particularly struck by Mary's humble confidence. That bold statement of all generations calling her blessed. And, and you know that, that paradox of, of humility and confidence that Mary so beautifully captures is really the paradox lived out by every Christian. That we acknowledge our sinfulness, our inadequacy, our smallness, and our frailty. And yet, we have confidence in our blessedness. Not because of anything in ourselves, but because of the faithfulness of our God. We have hope. We have a hope that is just as secure as it is undeserved. Thank you, Lord. And when we are most focused on God, that is when we are most confident and also most humbled. Because he is so holy 
and glorious. And, but that glory is expressed in how he cares for us and conquers our unworthiness. Psalm 138 pairs that glory and goodness together in verses 5 through 6. He says, great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. There's a key Old Testament, Old Testament passage that Mary's bringing into her praise in this song. The passage would come to mind for any who are familiar with the uh, Old Testament when they think about the character of who God is. Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 through 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is, this is a high point of God revealing himself to Moses. And this is how he describes himself. And other Hebrew writers recognize how important this description is because they keep picking it up again and again throughout the Old Testament. Other, like in, in 15 other verses that I know of, in eight other books, this text reveals the core of God's character. Merciful and gracious are the first words out of God's mouth after proclaiming his name. And he goes on to say, keeping steadfast love for thousands, which could also be translated keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, which is what Deuteronomy 7 says explicitly, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This is God's way of saying, there is no end date on my commitment to you. And Mary picks that up in verse 50 when she says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's reflecting on her God's character as he has revealed himself to be abundantly generous in his mercy and grace. In Exodus God has revealed himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And in Matthew, Jesus revealed himself as gentle and lowly. Showing not only that he regards the lowly, but he became lowly in order to unite us with himself. That Exodus text that echoes into Mary's song it, it, it's, it's God's revelation of himself after Moses was pleading with him to see his glory. And God said that Moses couldn't see his face and live, but now God is saying to Mary that he will show his face to her in a way that won't destroy her, in a way that is utterly unexpected. As John's gospel says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Full of grace and truth. Jesus reveals the glory and grace of God in the fullest way possible. And Mary sees how this shocking event that it, it is an expression of that God who revealed his heart to Moses. As a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, his keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations. But there's another Old Testament passage that has an even greater bearing on Mary's song. It's the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who is, uh, Samuel would be the prophet who would anoint King David. And Hannah, his mother, had been barren. She was 
abused and mocked because of her inability to bear children. And she pleaded with God in a radical prayer, saying essentially that she wanted the child for God rather than just for herself. And she proved that by dedicating him as a a servant of the temple. And God gave her that child that she prayed for. And the prayer that she prayed after his birth has clear parallels with Mary's prayer. Let me point out some. Where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord, I rejoice in your salvation. Mary says, holy is his name. Hannah said, there is none holy like the Lord. Mary says he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Hannah said the bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength. Mary says he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Hannah said those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. And so you can tell Mary's not repeating it word for word, but you're blind if you don't see the connections. This isn't a a strict quote. It's something else. It's a new song that's evoking this old song. It's a lot like what we've done with these Advent songs, taking up prayer songs that are from meaningful people in the history of our faith with themes and images and even much of the same wording to sing an old song in a new way. Sing in a new way and an old way at the same time. Mary's praise in this passage is a personal prayer that is drawing on and building upon an ancient prayer of someone who went through something similar, though not exactly the same thing. And the question is why? Why is she doing that? And there's two different kinds of answers that I want to give because I think there's important lessons for us to learn here. So so why is Mary drawing on this ancient prayer? And I think, well, first, because she grew up with these stories about Israel's history. They're the stories about God's redemptive work in history, so they mean a lot to her. They filled her imagination and her heart. And so when she finds herself unexpectedly pregnant due to the intervention of God, she recalls the story of another woman who found herself unexpectedly pregnant due to the intervention of God. And when she wants to praise God, she thinks about how that woman praised God. And so she's, she's so steeped in the words of scripture, that they flow naturally out of her. And I pray that we all become like this. That we can pray the prayers of scripture while making them our own. That we would be so saturated with God's word that in moments of great joy, or in moments of trial or temptation, it's truth that springs to the forefront of our minds. It takes treasuring it though. It is a treasure, God's word, worth knowing and loving. So let's immerse ourselves in it. Let's sing and pray and speak our ancient faith. Like Mary did. So that's the first answer to why she drew on Hannah's song. It's just in her. It bubbled up out of her rejoicing when she was rejoicing. But the second answer is about meaning. Mary and, and Luke, who recorded this song and this account, and ultimately the Holy Spirit, who inspired them both, uh, are all communicating the continuity of God in how he acts. Mary is saying that this 
this incarnation, this God becoming man, Jesus Christ, is the culmination of that same personality of God and that same, that same God that Hannah praised. And so what was Hannah singing about? She sang about the surprising goodness of God, how he doesn't seem to work through strength, but through weakness. Not through the high and the mighty, but through the lowly and the weak. Through poverty rather than through riches. Through humility rather than pride. She has seen how God demonstrates his own strength, not by recruiting the strong, but by siding with the underdog who trusts in him. And demonstrating that the people we think of as mighty are frail compared to the might of God. Notice how Mary points that out in her song. She calls God the mighty one. And then later she says he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. She's contrasting their so-called might of men with the true might of God. And his might is expressed in mercy. And Hannah's song, it ends like this. Listen, he will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. The anointed one. That's what Messiah means. You may recognize the title in a different language. Christ. So by Mary drawing on the ancient, this ancient mysterious prophecy, she's saying this baby miraculously conceived is the fulfillment of what Hannah sang, both in the character of God that Hannah observed, but also in this promise of God that God will raise up an anointed king. So when Mary ends her song like this, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, forever. She's emphasizing his, his faithfulness, his unchanging commitment, his consistent character, and how this incomprehensible act that Mary's grappling with, it is the highest manifestation of what the saints of old have been shown and have been promised. And while Hannah was mystified that the God of the universe, great in glory, would be concerned with her and would bless her, Mary is in awe not only that he not only sees her and blesses her, but he has come to be with her, to be in her. God continues to shatter our presumptuous intuitions about how he ought to act. Both her and Hannah, they avoid a mistake that, that many have made. That we assume that because God is great and exalted, he must favor great and exalted men. She points out it's the opposite. He demonstrates his might through mercy. And mercy, by definition, is only for the needy. Mary mentions God's mercy just as much as she mentions his might and strength. Mary is rejoicing that this strong God is not just blessing the strong, but that God's strength is shown in saving the weak. And that is what makes this gospel good news. It is good news because Jesus doesn't, say, doesn't come and say, I'll save you if you're enough like me. You got to be great like me and I'll bring you with me. No, he says, I'll become like you. I'll humble myself and become weak and I'll give myself to you. Even die in your place. 
and save you by my mercy and by my grace. Jesus' salvation goes not to the strong, but only to those who know they are weak, like Hannah, like Mary, those who are desperate, who recognize their need. Because it's only those people who can say to the Father, accept me not on my own merits, but because of what Jesus has done. And when Mary rejoices in this, as Hannah had before her, she sees this, this same movement of God that lifts the lowly is the same movement that brings down the high and the mighty. She says he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary sees the movement of a mighty wind. The wind of God's holy help. His merciful might is blowing. And this same wind affects different people in different ways. This wind will carry you to shore or scatter you further out to sea depending on how you respond. Which side of the peninsula you are on. Imagine God's saving presence extended into the sea of this world as a peninsula. And we are all on sailboats. Are you following? (laughs) This strong eastern wind is blowing. And those on the east who are, are, are those who are lowly and needy in the world's eyes. And those on the west are those who are high and mighty in the world's eyes. Those east of shore who are the lowly, they're at an advantage. Those on the west who are haughty, they will be swept further out to sea. And there's people in this room who are on both sides of the shore this morning. So let me talk to each of you for a moment separately. Those who are looked down on, despised, those who actually feel their need, who feel like nobodies, who feel like failures, unworthy. To you, faith and repentance looks simply like raising your sail. This wind of God's might and mercy will carry you to his chest and to his embrace. He sees you. He wants you. He can save you. Trust him. And then there's those of you who are well off in this world. And it's more of you than you might think. The majority of Americans are in this boat probably. Where we can be tempted to be content in our position and our possessions rather than in God. And to you, this same wind that blows the lowly to shore will blow you further out to sea. But before you lament, there is hope for you yet. But I need to give you a little sailing lesson. I remember back when I did my sailing merit badge back in my Boy Scout days. And I was thrilled to find out that you could actually sail against the wind, into the wind. What sailors call windward. With only the power of the wind itself, it blew my mind. The wind can carry you towards the wind. This same east wind that will naturally blow you westward can carry you east if you respond in a certain way. If you do what's called tacking. Turning again and again. Back and forth in angles towards the direction of your destination. 
returning again and again. Jesus once said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think this is what he was talking about. This wind of God that naturally carries the lowly in the right direction, it can carry the rich in the right direction too. It can even carry the high and the mighty if they respond with continual repentance, continual turning, continually forsaking self-sufficiency and pride and letting the Spirit fill you. But it's harder because there's more temptation to trust in the things of this world. The, this idea of the wind, it's not something I came up with. This, the biblical word for spirit ha, carries with it this meaning of wind. So when Paul says, be filled with the spirit, we can be a little confused because that seems like something that happens to us. And like we can obey the command, call your mother. But how do you obey the command? Be called by your mother. But then whenever you, you bring this idea of wind in, it becomes more clear, especially in that context of sailing, because you're carried along by a mighty, invisible power that is not your own. And yet, you work with that power, raising your sail, angling the boat, and we all must be filled with the Spirit, but it takes humility to be carried by, this, this, by a strength that isn't your own. It takes recognition of your need, and that comes more easily to those whose worldly position is lowly. But the proud will be scattered out to sea, unable to fulfill their true purpose of glorifying and magnifying God by rejoicing in him as Savior because they're rejoicing in other things too much. They're, they're too consumed with themselves. This same truth that lifts the lowly by telling them they are no worse brings down the high and mighty by telling you you are no better. It reminds me of an old question about whether Christianity is easy or hard. Because Jesus seems to say both. Did you know that? I mean, in Matthew 7, he says that the way is hard that leads to life. Remember that? And then, just a little bit later, Matthew 11, he says, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus isn't contradicting himself. He's talking to two different boats. To the windward boats the lowly and the dejected, or as he calls them, the weary and the heavy laden. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Lift your sail. And to the leeward boats, those in high position, the mighty, the proud, the rich, as Mary calls us, he says the way is easy that leads to destruction. And the way is hard that leads to life. Because it's harder for you to become like a little child. And in Matthew 18, he says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. We must humble ourselves before God. And the most glorious thing that I know in all the world is that God humbled himself yes, in Jesus I was recently asked what my favorite poem is. And I, I like the question. I couldn't answer it right away because I had too many things going on in my mind swirling around. But it made me reflect on some of my favorites. So I'm answering your question now, Brad. It was a tough choice. But I think I've narrowed it down. My very favorite poem is actually a Christmas poem by G.K. Chesterton. And it's called Gloria in Profundus. 
And that's a, that's a, a play on the Latin version of the angel song, Gloria in Excelsis, which means glory in the highest. Glory in profundis is Latin for glo- glory in the lowest. And I really recommend you find it. You can find it online, read the whole thing because it's hard to reflect on a poem in this setting. But let me share some of it with you. It starts like this. There's fallen on earth for a token, a God too great for the sky. He has burst out of all things and broken the bounds of eternity. Isn't that the greatest thing you've ever heard? A God too great for the sky. He has broken the bounds of eternity by entering into earth and time as a man. And then the second stanza contrasts the pride of man with the humility of God. He says, Who is proud when the heavens are humble? Who mounts if the mountains fall? If the fixed stars topple and tumble and a deluge of love drowns all. How can we be proud when heaven is humble? The incarnation, Christmas properly understood, ought to profoundly humble us all. The next stanza ends like this. Outrushing the fall of man is the height of the fall of God. And this fall of God, this condescension, this coming down of God into humanity is of such greatness. Of, it outrushes, outpaces, outdoes in every way even the fall of humanity. The condescension of Christ is infinitely greater than even the fall of humanity, all of humanity into sin. Enough so that as Andrew and I wrote in that song, when he came down, we were lifted up. Gloria in profundis. Glory to God in the lowest. But this isn't the lowest he would go, is it? He wouldn't just be born. He would die. He would die a death of shame and punishment and wrath. Not because he deserved it. Because he chose it. Because he loved us. And that death was the ultimate act of his mighty mercy. Because as, as Isaiah prophesied about him many years before he was even born, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. His birth was just the beginning of his surprising and powerful ministry. And his death wouldn't be the end because that little human that began in Mary's womb would be raised to life again, glorified as the resurrected king who conquered death and to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And how he treated his own humanity is the ultimate hope for us. He didn't give up on being human after his ministry was done. No, he glorified his humanity. He, what he has made, he will restore and glorify. He is just the first fruits. The son of, man, of God became a man to make us men become sons of God. Mary recognized the beauty of this Christ, Christmas message and its implications for us. How it lifts the lowly and it humbles the proud and the self-sufficient. 
that our God is the mighty one whose might is expressed in mercy. He is the holy one whose holiness is expressed in helping. And when we focus on him and on his actions, we will be humble, but we will also be confident. Confident in our blessedness and in our hope. Confident in his love for us. Confident because of his faithfulness. And through this humble confidence, we will sing. We'll sing. Our hearts will rejoice in his glorious grace. And rejoicing hearts, our rejoicing hearts and praising lips will magnify his name. This wind of Christ's might and mercy is blowing. Aim your bow at him. Raise your sail. He will carry you to himself. Trust him. Trust him today. Keep trusting him. And with Mary, rejoice in his goodness. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, our Holy Helper, you are mighty and merciful. You are the lifter of the lowly. We are blessed forever through your goodness toward us. I pray that you give us all faith to trust in you. Give us humility to turn from self-sufficiency and pride. Give us joy in your salvation. And make us, even us, magnify your name. Even now in our praise, may our praise bring you glory. We pray in your son's wonderful, mighty name. Amen.